0: The 2020 election has led to some of the strangest alliances in political history.
1: Right now, political strategists who have previously worked for candidates as ideologically far apart as Dick Cheney and Bernie Sanders or Sarah Palin and Elizabeth Warren are united in a common goal.
0: The defeat of Trumpism. We've
1: talked a lot about coalition building this season, and Joe Biden has built a coalition ranging from the far left to at least the center right. Or it may be more fair to say that that coalition has been born out of a rejection of Donald Trump.
0: But what happens after the election? If Trump loses, where does this energy go in January 2021? If Trump wins, what happens next?
1: Welcome to the Reckon Interview. I'm John Hammondry.
0: And I'm R.L. Nave. And with the election just a week away, we're talking about what could happen next.
1: Rick Wilson is a political strategist who has advised Republicans like George H.W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and Rudy Giuliani. But in 2019, he co-founded the Lincoln Project, a pact that's made up of former Republican consultants dedicated to the defeat of Trump and of Trumpism. Wilson argues that Republicans have to lose up and down the ballot in order to wipe out the seeds of Trumpism and rebuild the conservative movement. We also discussed what the Lincoln Project will do in
0: 2021 and beyond if Trump does lose. Amy Castanel is a digital strategist working with the Working Families Party in Atlanta, and she organizes on campaigns in several southern states. We talked about how people can get involved if there's a disputed election, drawing on the experience of the Georgia governor's race in 2018. We also talked about how to gear up for future campaigns and recruiting black women to run for public office.
1: So let's get started with Rick Wilson on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Rick Wilson, thanks for coming on The Reckon
2: Interview. John, I'm delighted to be with you.
1: I imagine that anybody with internet access over the last year has seen a Lincoln Project ad, but not everybody is familiar with your story of how you came to be involved with this. How did somebody who went from working with George H.W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Rudy Giuliani come to creating brutal attack ads about the current Republican president and presidential candidate, Donald Trump?
2: Well, the the reason I came there is because Donald Trump represents an existential threat to the country, because I strongly believe that he is neither a Republican or a conservative at heart. I think he's going to be a destructive force, both in our politics and our national survival. And so my objective in helping to co-found the Lincoln Project was to provide a counterweight using the skills that I and other of my Republican colleagues had developed over many years to address that problem and to go after Trump in a way that that was not going to be the sort of standard issue Democratic Party approach to fighting elections. I mean, we don't come into elections with an agenda of arguing policy. We come in to win. We come in to knock them hard and to break things. And that's our approach. And and our Democratic friends often were not able to perform in the same degree.
1: Yeah, Republicans have long been better at attack ads. And it has been interesting to see what happens if Republican attack ads are aimed at The Republican candidate and the Republican president. But that kind of begs the question, I guess. The Lincoln Project has received criticism from the right and criticism from the left. And a lot of that criticism has been around kind of perceived hypocrisy that y'all have used these tactics in the past to put forward candidates who may have paved the way for Donald Trump. Do you feel that some of the candidates that you or your colleagues have worked with in the past were kind of forerunners for the president?
2: No. And I'll tell you why. Because none of our candidates had. Fox News completely shaping 80% of the Republican Party's brain space. None of our candidates had Facebook. None of our candidates had Russian troll armies and Vladimir Putin's GRU pushing behind them. Donald Trump is sui generis in many, many ways. And none of our candidates, by the way, that any of us have ever worked for, came from such unbelievably flawed moral and psychological stock. Donald Trump is sui generis in a lot of ways, but the degree to which Donald Trump is a vacant evil vessel full of psychological malice and horrifying narcissism is unique in our political histories. None of us have ever worked for anyone even vaguely close to a Trump-like character. And I can tell you this, after 30 years of working in Republican politics, and I've been very critical of our past on race issues, but not one of us ever worked for a president who would have put a kid in the cage. Not one of us ever worked for a president who would have said there were very fine people on both sides in Charlottesville. In fact, when I worked for George Herbert Walker Bush, a bunch of young appointees like me, we had to take, well, we didn't have to, we wanted to, to take a leave of absence from our government appointments, go down to to Louisiana to beat David Duke's ass, to put a Democratic governor in office in order to beat David Duke because our president, George Herbert Walker Bush, hated David Duke with the fire of a thousand suns and everything he represented and believed that if you even let that kind of person creep in the door it would destroy the party and he was right. Well,
1: and we saw a similar effort in Alabama, my home state, you know, in 2017 of Republicans mounting a very serious effort against Roy Moore as the candidate.
2: I was part of that effort and we we ran ads that tested very very highly against Roy Moore. We spent a lot of of time and resources down there and I was proud as hell to help. That was the first statewide Democrat I'd ever worked for since we went down to help <laughs> Edwards blow up David Duke. It had been a, it had been a minute since I'd done it, but it was a very satisfying place to be. We were on the side of right. And, you know, Roy Moore was such a deeply unacceptable and horrible person and horrible candidate that it was an easy lift. And it told you a lot about Donald Trump, that he endorsed the guy and stuck with him until the end.
1: And it's not just Trump that y'all have been building attack ads against during this campaign cycle. You know, you've been going after a lot of senators who have publicly backed President Trump, who at one point were never Trumpers, or at least claimed to be never Trumpers, people like Senator Lindsey Graham, major advise in states like South Carolina. I don't know if y'all have been involved with this Doug Jones, Tommy Tuberville race at all.
2: We have not yet been involved in the in the Alabama race yet. We have been involved in nine U.S. Senate races, and we did it because of a very simple principle. When we established the Lincoln Project, we told people we are going after Donald Trump, and we are also going after Trumpism and its enablers. And every person we've gone after has had plenty of chances to either denounce Donald Trump or defy Donald Trump or vote against things that he wants or speak out. And with the exception of Mitt Romney, not one of them has had the moral courage to do so. We hear this undercover recording of Ben Sass that leaked yesterday, where he talks about the president in the way he talks about him in Behind Closed Doors. Well, it's too late for that. You should have done that a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. But most of these guys are too cowardly and they're too afraid of what we call FOMT, fear of mean tweets. They've hidden in the tall grass and they pretended to publicly love the president while they privately loathe and despise him. And we're against that kind of politics. You know, we're not an ideological organization. We're not here to promote any particular set of policies at all. We are a political organization dedicated to the defeat of Trumpism and Trump. And if you're an enabler of that, as my friend Steve Schmidt likes to say, hey, you bought the ticket, you get to take the ride.
1: I guess that begs the question of what happens come November. The polls, the tea leaves, they all seem to indicate that barring massive interference, which I don't think would be beneath him, Donald Trump will likely lose this election. But a lot of the enablers of Trumpism, you know, you pointed out that it was he sui generis but the right-wing media apparatus that has grown up around him and a lot of the candidates that have remolded themselves in Trump's image, particularly you know throughout the Southeast. There's not been a single candidate that I've seen that hasn't run on Trump's coattails. Is there still that mission to defeat Trumpism after Trump has been removed from office?
2: Absolutely. Look, these people are a pernicious risk to this country. They're a pernicious and ongoing risk to the small-D democratic principles of the American Republic. I don't want anyone who thinks they can run Trumpism through the car wash and pretend it's normal American politics to ever sleep well at night. I want them to think the Lincoln Project's going to come and they're going to wreck our day. I want them to believe that because it's true. And I want them to understand that because the idea that they have abandoned all conceivable conservative principle and substituted that for the adoration of an authoritarian. They've substituted that for the strongman politics of a Trump. They've substituted that for the post-ideological, the idea that that the only thing that politics is about now is owning the libs. It's an absurdity. And it's something that deserves to be both addressed and fought against.
1: So does that indicate that the Lincoln Project will continue to exist in some form post-January 2021, assuming that Trump leaves office?
2: It absolutely will. We are fully engaged and ready to go into the Georgia U.S. Senate race. The minute the national election is over, that race will be resolved in January in a runoff. We are preparing to go after candidates in 2022 that are continuing the theme and theory of Trumpism. This is not something we take lightly. We're not doing this just for fun. This is a long-running, broader mission. Donald Trump may have been a unique figure And a one-off in many ways, but the people that have molded themselves after him, we still feel will represent a threat to this country.
1: I believe at some point, I don't know if it was you or one of your colleagues talked about having to salt the earth of this Republican party, you know, burning it to the ground, rebuilding it. I guess the question becomes at what point is the Lincoln project just an extension of the Democratic party then, you know, is it the attack arm of the Democratic party?
2: Well, look, as of now, The Democratic Party is not our problem because Trumpism is a bigger problem. The Democratic rescission in this country, the small d Democratic rescission in this country is a much bigger problem than the Democratic Party. We are, as I've said, not an ideological organization. We are not about a a set of policy outcomes on the old issues that informed the country. We are very much about restoring a sense of competence and stability to our small d Democratic processes. We are very much about restoring the idea that the rule of law matters, that elections need to be clean and fair and open. But we're not going to argue with people about how many parts per billion of carbon need to be in the atmosphere. And look, the Democrats have got a real choice ahead of them. They made a wise choice this year in Joe Biden because Joe Biden was a man who allowed this race to become a referendum on Donald Trump. It's not about policy. If this was an argument about policy, this would be a much different electoral landscape. And if this was about a candidate like a Bernie, perhaps we would be in a much different fight. But they have to make another choice. And I think the the wise choice for them is to look at what the next two years really means. The next two years really is going to be about recovering the country from COVID and from the economic crisis that we're presently in. If they choose to pursue that, they're going to have great electoral success. If they go off into a tangent, You know whether it's the Green New Deal or whatever caught their fancy that moment, I think they would face a much more difficult and a much more problematic electoral future.
1: It's been interesting because in tying themselves so directly to Donald Trump, the Republican Party has kind of yielded the policy field to the extent that they didn't even develop a platform this year. You're right in that this election seems to be largely a referendum on Donald Trump. But we've also seen polling indicate that Uh, Issues like Black Lives Matter are polling better than they were six years ago. Progressives seem to be gaining traction on issues like climate change and the environment and issues like Wall Street and the economy. You know, I mean, the same populist vein that we see on the Republican side also exists on the Democratic side. And so the question is then, with such a massive coalition that Joe Biden has been able to build all the way from aspects of the far left to, you know, center right, will he have any mandate to do anything at all in January?
2: Look, the mandate he has is very straightforward. It is to undo the damage the country has had done to it by Trump's mishandling of COVID. And that includes both the humanitarian side of that equation and the economic side of that equation. That's the first and primary mandate. The country has extraordinary divisions on the far left and the far right. And you know Alabama and Oregon are never going to be the same place. The middle of the country is a much different creature you know, and I've counseled Democrats on this, and they've largely followed my counsel on it, thankfully. Progressivism in Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota and Iowa and Ohio and Pennsylvania is not like progressivism in Massachusetts or California. Those states are not as woke. They're not as determined to, you know, fundamentally transform any particular ideological vision. The middle of the country is a lot more mushy for both sides than hyper-partisans left or right would like. There are a lot of Republicans like, oh, you know, there's Catholic voters in, in Wisconsin, therefore the only issue is going to be abortion. Well, no, it's not. But that populism that has crept into both sides, I think there's a broader consensus in the center right now. And it's a little more technocratic than ideological is that there are fundamental systems in this country that have gotten very out of whack. The tax system is one of them. Crony capitalism should be the enemy of both progressives and conservatives. But Washington right now is a giant factory for crony capitalism. That should be something that, that is a transpartisan idea. And look, there's a doctrine that I like to call radical competence, which has not been tried in this country in a very long time. And I think that there will be a great success for people who they may have strong, passionate beliefs left or right but you know getting potholes filled getting ppe distributed doing the fundamentals doing the blocking and tackling of governance i think that's got a big future in this country
1: you mentioned that part of the Biden mandate would be an economic recovery. There was a Bloomberg piece out recently that indicated that Mitch McConnell and and others in the Republican Senate may be poised to offer the same type of resistance to a Biden administration that they offered to an Obama administration on issues like economic recovery, basically hanging a, a slow economic recovery around Biden for political purposes. In that instance, would you find it appropriate to in the filibuster? Or is that taking another step away from partisan norms, from political norms?
2: I think people always regret radical transformation when they can't get something done legislatively and they want to hack the system. Let me tell you, a lot of Democrats right now are are saying, oh, we should add seats to the court. Okay. So let's just draw it out. Let's let's play it out. Let's say you added four seats to the Supreme Court. Okay. Well, guess what? 10 years from now, when our natural sort of cyclic politics happen, and it's president josh hawley and senate majority leader mike lee and they say we're going to add 16 seats in addition to balance the court and we're going to name 16 new justices bang 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 when you break these systems even if you don't like them when you break them what replaces them is always more risky than you think and the idea that once you break something that the other side won't say well They decided they would play the game, so we're going to play the game too. That's how bad this situation becomes when you shatter norms, when you break institutional norms. And you know why the Democrats are regretting right now that it only takes 60 votes to stop Amy Comey Barrett or other judges? It's because Harry Reid tweaked the system. And the idea that you tweak the system for your political gain is always tempting, but the consequences of tweaking those systems is always fraught with unexpected consequences.
1: I recognize your point on the courts, but you know, back to the issue of the Senate, if the consequences of not tweaking the system are that millions of people continue to be out of work and struggle in an economic recovery from COVID, I guess what is the greater consequence there?
2: Well, as somebody who realizes the fundamental lesson of politics is this, pain is the only teacher. So when those senators following minority leader Mitch McConnell go out there and say, eh, we're gonna screw Biden over, we're gonna slow the economy down, we're not gonna give anybody relief. Well, the response isn't hack the filibuster, the response is go out and run great elections, raise a ton of money, get great candidates, beat the living shit out of these Republicans on this issue, go out there and make them regret ever hearing the name Mitch McConnell. Go out there and burn them to the ground. That's what a republic does When there are political actions, the consequences at the ballot box need to be extraordinarily high. And I think this country right now is in a position where COVID has devastated so many people's lives. I could make that case all day long. I could go out and wreck people's day on voting against COVID relief all day long. That's not even breaking a sweat.
1: How should regular people, you know, our listeners and and the people who are viewing your ads – how should they respond and, and what are ways that they can do to fix the system, to get back to, you know, even before Harry Reid tweaked the system? And I'll just offer up as an example. For months, we at my organization, AL.com, have been trying to organize a debate between Democratic Senator Doug Jones and his opponent, Tommy Tupperville. Tupperville, like a number of Republicans, other than ones who are trailing in states like South Carolina, have strategically decided not to debate. I won't say whether or not it's a good strategy, but it seems to be an effective strategy because then our hands are somewhat tied. If we host an event with Doug Jones, then, you know, they can turn around and point to that and decry unfairness. So you are, in essence, letting one side dictate how the way the system works.
2: You put up an empty podium and you embarrass the shit out of them. Believe me, there's nothing a candidate hates more than being humiliated. And I've used this tactic before in congressional and Senate races where the other guy's holding his nose and saying, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. But you have to remember, a lot of people in politics on their Trumpian side, they do not play by norms. You cannot shame them. You cannot say to them, well, we'll be disappointed, the people won't like it. You have to say, all right, what we're going to do is put an inflatable clown behind your podium and have an interview with your opponent." you've got to learn to play hardball in the same way they do because they don't respond to the normal cues of shame and social pressure and all that stuff. They are divorced from that. And, and it's, it's difficult for people to get to that point, I think, because nobody wants to think of your opponent as someone who is totally amoral, but, but modern Trumpism is a totally amoral philosophy. And unless you punish the people who engage in it and raise the, the political and personal costs, they will continue to do the things that they do.
1: I'm curious about you know the cost for you and some of your colleagues. I would imagine this has made you persona non grata in a lot of circles that you
2: may have formerly run in. Uh, All of them, yes. <laughs> <laughs> has it been worth it? Are you having fun? Well, look, I wake up every day and I'm doing the best creative work of my life for a reason. And that reason is this matters. This matters a lot. I could have kept a, a lot of my friendships. I lived a very comfortable life before this you know, but I've put my faith in Providence, you know, everything will work out after this for whatever, in whatever way it's going to work out. But the work is hard. The camaraderie of the Lincoln Project organization is better than any campaign I've ever been in. We are a band of brothers and sisters here fighting a fight. You know, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it is a noble fight. And it is a fight that we were all meant to be in at a fundamental level. And so I wake up every day. I'm in a, I'm in a great fighting mood every day. And we're you know, we've become the interlocutors of a movement that sees us as the tip of the spear against Donald Trump. And that's a position we're very proud to be in.
1: Is there a Republican candidate in the South that you would vote for in 2020?
2: In the South in 2020? I can't think of one off the top of my head, honestly. All the congressionals are completely submerged in Trumpism. Even when they don't really believe it, they're they're pretending. Like Matt Gates in Florida does not believe in Donald Trump. He is not a trumper. He is an opportunist hustler uh, who wants to be on Fox News. I can't think of a single one right now that I would vote for and it it's because they fail a fundamental test. It's like if you're going to be representing a state or the country as a Republican and you can't speak truth about what Donald Trump is and you can't confess that you know Donald Trump is is not the values that were represented or th- that you claim to represent in this party, then we have we have nothing to discuss, and it's difficult for me to easily just say, "Oh, I, I'm just going to let partisan, you know, inertia pick a, a candidate anywhere these days."
1: And then, you know, you you mentioned a hypothetical Josh Hawley presidency in 2030. Who are the candidates, you know, that you would like to see kind of reemerge and remold the Republican Party, if such a thing is possible?
2: I would prefer to see some young decorated combat veteran who doesn't spend any time thinking about the Federalist Society or Donald Trump uh, emerge from nowhere, because every single one of those men and women who have compromised themselves and compromised this country to support Donald Trump have made themselves fundamentally undeserving of election to the highest office in the land.
1: Do you have any predictions, parting wisdom for November?
2: Look, this race is close. It is tough it is going to be a grind to the end. Everybody needs to stay in the fight. If you can vote early, go vote early. If you can get out and do your absentee or or mail ballot, get it out right away. Don't wait. Get it done sooner than later. And if you can't get out on election day, bring bottled water, do a tag team with a buddy so they can hold your place in line. if You have to go to pee or eat, but you got to vote. It is absolutely vital.
0: Coming up after the break, Amy Castanel reminds us that even after the presidential race is over, whenever that may be, there are several key mayors races happening all across the South and how people can get involved with those issues and campaigns at the local level.
1: And now we have a special surprise for all of our Wrecking Interview subscribers. This is the world premiere
0: for the trailer of the next
1: season of Wreckin' Radio. Pulitzer Prize winner John Archibald and Roy S. Johnson present Unjustifiable, the story of Benita Carter and a police shooting that changed Birmingham, Alabama forever. Coming in November.
3: And they went up and shot her.
2: A police shooting of a young woman in 1979 changed her city. Some say changed the world. It led to riots, protests. Outrage and the usual responses from those who had ruled the South
0: for so long. I remember there were cars with white men driving through the neighborhood, shooting in the neighborhood. Now, no. I can't say they were clan, but my guess is, you know, they were, they didn't look like me.
2: It changed the balance of power in Birmingham, Alabama, a city once known as Bombingham. It upended a police
3: department built by that infamous Bull Connor. It ignited a movement four decades before Black Lives Matter. That's what struck me.
2: Days later, weeks later, years later, that I would really come to grasp the significance of what she had done, of her death. What was it
3: about this woman? Birmingham's history, maybe. Maybe hundreds of police shootings that came before her. And I remember asking myself, am I going to be able to shoot somebody This just running unarmed. And I don't know what I would have done.
2: Hundreds of killings of black people over generations ruled justifiable. And it just spurred a question in me is, is how often does that happen? And I thought it would be as simple as that to, to find out.
3: What does Benita Carter still have to teach us? And what really happened on that fateful Friday night? And so I just said, you know, incidentally, who was the officer who did the shooting? And Maya said, Joy Sands. But oh my
2: god. Oh.
1: Hello. Hello, is this Mr.
2: George Sands? That's Dollar. Unjustifiable, a new six-part series from Reckon. Coming soon to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any of your favorite platforms.
3: Bonita, Patrice, Carter. Say her name.
0: Welcome back to the Record Interview. I'm your co-host, R.L. Nave, and today I'm joined by Amy Castanel. She is the Southeast Regional Communications Director for the Working Families Party. Amy, welcome to the podcast.
3: Hi, thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Thanks for taking the time. I know you are hella busy right now. We have an election in, I don't know, like three days or something like that. (laughs) Basically. But what we're talking about today is really looking beyond the big election day, the November election, and the question of, okay, so I've engaged, I've voted, what should I do now? But before we get there, you know, this election is obviously looks very different. You know, I mean, I think in terms of organizers, like, you know, we know how to do voter registration drives. We know how to do get out the vote activities, you know, sort of to the degree that like, this is actually plausible and going to be a thing. You know, I think that a lot of people are bracing for the possibility that like, we're not going to know who the winners of, you know, putting the presidential election aside, you know, even some statewide races. From an organizing perspective, what should people be doing in anticipation of that? But then also like November 4th comes, we don't know who won, particularly if folks feel that like suppressive tactics were at play. What are the kinds of things like people are going to be doing on that day to make sure that their voices are heard and their and the ballots are counted?
3: It's funny that you ask this because, you know, I live in Atlanta in the state of Georgia. We have been dealing with and managing mismanaged elections for years, probably, you know, decades. But most recently in 2018, We went through a really scandalous election in which the secretary of state essentially stole the governorship through a series of like scandalous tactics like closing polling places, moving polling places, purging voters, not putting through voter registrations, not giving enough power outlets to voting machines. A friend of mine calls it death by a thousand cuts. It's just like voter suppression in turbo drive. And so we've seen all this happen. We've seen what happens at the end of election night when we're expecting the results and we don't get the results because the votes haven't been counted yet. There's massive problems at the polls. And so it takes a lot of time. In 2018, we had to run behind people for weeks trying to like cure votes, which is what happens when you have to vote with a provisional ballot instead of the regular ballot at your polling place for whatever reason. Maybe you got an absentee ballot. And you didn't want to vote absentee anymore, and so you go in person, or the machines don't work, and so you need to vote somehow, and so they give you a provisional ballot. So just like chaos, essentially. And I think people need to be prepared, not necessarily in a way that like don't do it because it's scary. Be prepared that there might be anomalies or things that happen either leading up to election day or on election day that could cause a wait time for the result. So people should be aware. People should take note if they see things that are seem wrong, (laughs) they should report them. We at the Working Families Party have have created something called the Frontline, uh, which is a partnership with the Working Families Party and the Movement for Black Lives and the Rising Majority. And we started recruiting poll workers when we heard that there weren't going to be enough poll workers to actually like operate all of the polling places in the country. We have recruited a number of volunteers to be poll watchers, who are people who like go out to polling places and make sure that like things aren't wild that there aren't people like uh, intimidating folks at the polls that there aren't like if there are massive lines that people are comfortable as comfortable as they can be anyway um that there's food that there's water that people understand what they should expect so that they don't leave the line that they don't you know stop voting because they feel uncomfortable and we have a bunch of legal volunteers to make sure that like when you report something that you see that happened in the polling place that is wrong that you have somebody to support you Who can like actually like file a? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. File a something, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, protect your vote. Like we
0: remember 2000, or some of us who are old enough to remember 2000, (laughs) right? And and, you know, we know that like sides are going to send in armies of attorneys. But you know, if I'm just like a community member and I want to get involved, I'm I'm not a lawyer. It's interesting to hear you talk about like all these other needs.
3: Yeah. I mean, people can do all kinds of things to help out. Like you don't have to be a lawyer to be helpful. You could order pizza and bring it and hand out slices to people. I mean, wear a mask, obviously, and have hand sanitizer because COVID is real, but you can do lots of things to help. You can bring bottles of water. You can like hand out PPE. Like there are lots of people who are like collecting masks for folks who are going to be waiting in these lines and not everybody necessarily has what they need. You could volunteer to bring somebody that you know to the polls because they can't get there otherwise. You can volunteer to watch somebody's baby. You don't have to have some kind of like advanced degree to be helpful ever, um, but certainly not when it comes to voting. Voting should be, ideally, democracy should be for everyone and voting should be easy and people should be able to do it at every level of society.
0: So presumably this current election will, will end maybe before January 20th. Who knows? You know, these periods after these like really hard fought, very emotional campaigns, if it doesn't go the way that you hoped, you know, you can become dejected and disillusioned. And, you know, if it does go the way that you hoped, you know, it's very easy to like sit back and rest on your laurels and say that, like, I won that win. And so, I mean, I just like depending on no matter what side of that fence you may find yourself on after this election. I'm interested in just like stuff about like self-care and like preparing yourself mentally for the next battle.
3: Yeah. If you work in politics long enough or even not even long enough, if you work in politics, period, you are well aware that elections are not like a zero sum game. Truly like there is obviously a winner and there's obviously a loser. But that's only one part of the equation. The other part is like who are you organizing with? How are you building power with the communities that you care about? And that's what we do at the Working Families Party. You're not going to win every election. If you do, then I think probably something is wrong with the way that voting is taking place in that place that you just automatically win every election without really doing very much work. Uh, you're probably also not building power with communities and you're probably not listening to voters because you you already assume that you will win everything and so it doesn't matter. But what we do is we like cover the whole spectrum of tactics we identify and recruit candidates to run for office so that we know the people that we're putting up in these places to represent us are actually people who come from our communities who understand our issues who have who hold the same values as us who will when they get elected actually do governance in a way that includes us the people working people who live in this place we also work with other people in the community who are just like interested citizens are interested humans who want to be involved in the political process, who want to help people win campaigns, who want to help change their community in whatever way it makes sense for them. Uh, So we work with people to like help write legislation, help talk to legislators so that they actually are passing laws and bills that make sense for people, that change people's lives for the better. And you know, and we run campaigns that win because we all of our campaigns are rooted in those same values from community. And so when we lose An election if we were to lose this one. I mean, 2020 is a big year, but honestly, like there's there's elections every year. There's sometimes elections every month in this year alone in Georgia. I feel like we've had easily 10 different elections, all of which are important. None of them are not important. Certainly the presidency is like very looming large and it sucks up all the energy in the entire earth And you can just like fills every room that it's in. But next year in Atlanta, the entire city council is up for re-election. The mayor is up for re-election. Those roles are not insignificant to people. Like you see the mayor when you go to the grocery store. So that's a job that like not only is it important in the city because that person is the executive of the city. So it makes a lot of Choices that will affect you every single day that you leave your house, but also you can see that person and you can have a relationship with that person and know that person. I'm not going to see Donald Trump when I walk out of my door. Thank God, and most people probably won't because he doesn't live in our communities. He lives somewhere else. Who knows, Marlago? I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound too Uncle Ruckus about it, but yeah, like these local elections seem like uh, missed opportunities in some places. You know, both in terms of Serving as a training ground for state or federal elections, you know, from an engagement standpoint, but then also like from building the the bench. And so like, you know, cycle after cycle, we see these like voter turnout in municipal elections, you know, is like 10, 15 percent. I mean, if you could just talk about like the work y'all are doing to address that and and how do you feel it's going?
3: Part of it is what we were talking about just two seconds ago was that like, this is how you inoculate people against apathy around voting is to let them know that like, you might not win this one, but that doesn't mean that you're out of it because there's going to be another election. You can try again. And we can like, we've learned something from running in this election so that the next time we do it, we'll do it better. We have more resources. We have more people that we know. We know how the system works. So we'll be able to like make better choices. All of those things are important. So like that's part of it. Like building a bench includes helping people understand how the process works so that you don't, Because you know, I mean, when you choose to run for office, you go, nobody decides to run for any office thinking, like, I'm going to lose this one. (laughs) If you do, then, like, you probably are not very good at anything. You go in and you're like, I'm going to win. I want to win. You work to win. And then if you don't win, it is like truly devastating. I mean, it's devastating to the people who helped you, who are working on the campaign. As the candidate, it's like very personal and you feel all kinds of emotions, I would imagine. (laughs) I have not run for anything. But You know, and and the whole the whole way during the election, particularly for like black candidates, what we do at the Working Families Party, we have this program called Bet on Us, which is meant to build like a political home in the South for black women and non-binary folks who are interested in politics and changing their community to reflect our values. And through Bet On Us, we've done like a number of like political education sessions. We've done trainings like this year alone. We did this uh, candidate cohort where we endorsed about 30 different black women in the South, in South Carolina, Florida and Georgia, obviously, and helped them figure out like the like literal nuts and bolts of starting to run for office. Like how do you structure a campaign? How do you run a campaign? But also help them figure out like, how do you think about being an elected official, like, what will you do once you're in office? How will you have that job? And, like, introduce them to other folks we know who are Working Families Party. Work candidates are now elected officials who understand, like, when people elect you to do this work, particularly as a movement candidate, you're usually going into a fairly contentious workplace. It's like, if you got hired for a job and everybody who works at that job didn't want you. (laughs) And so you go in and, you know, you get told lots of things, like, If you do this, I'll be on your side. And so I'll make it easier for you to do something else down the road. And it might seem like a small thing. But if you go in with that mentality of like basically like (laughs) what people would identify as like a a politician's mentality like, oh, I'm going to make this choice so I can do this other thing later without thinking about the community that you came from, that's how you lose in the long term. Because the people who brought you there are the people who are going to be with you always. That one person who's in your little elected official group who's telling you like, you must do these things in order to keep this job. I, I talked to um, this representative here in Georgia, and she told me every day she goes to work, she thinks I'm going to lose my job today. Because she, and she was like, that's the only way you can ever be effective. Because she's like, I'm bringing with me all of the people in my community to make these choices. I'm not going in there to make sure that I keep this job. Because if the end result of me doing the right thing is that I don't keep this job, then I wasn't supposed to have this job.
0: I mean, it's obviously a risk proposition. I mean, I think for a lot of folks in terms of building a bench, it may serve folks to know that they're going into it with don't have super high expectations, because, you know, if you're a young candidate and you're trying to unseat an incumbent city council person who's been there for like 40 years, you know, that's like that's a very hard You know, it's as difficult as unseating an incumbent senator who's been there for 30 years in in some ways. (laughs) Who could
3: you possibly be talking about?
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm talking about all of them, (laughs) right? But are we saying to people like, yeah, like these these first couple times, like you are probably going to get trounced.
3: I mean, I think you need to go in with an awareness that it's going to be an uphill battle and that it's going to be difficult. But I do think like in the same way that like people who win all the time don't always do the work of trying to win anymore because they feel like, oh, well, I'm already here. People know me. It's easy for me. And we've seen it happen where candidates come in and they're able to unseat somebody who's been there for a re- very long time because that person has gotten very lazy in their job, is completely ineffectual, and shouldn't have that job anymore. I mean, AOC is a perfect example in New York. She ran against somebody who nobody thought she could win. It seemed impossible. But the impossible is possible if you are rooted in community and you have like people behind you who support you. And that's what happened with her. I mean, I see it happening all over the place down here. I mean, I think the level of support we're seeing for Jamie Harrison, who the Working Families Party has also endorsed, is indicative of the fact that, like, you know, Lindsey Graham should not be there anymore. He's not good at that job. And the people of South Carolina are over it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it does seem to be changing. And I think we see that in the composition of the U.S. House of Representatives, which, you know, is the, the chamber that is, is, is close to the people. It's the most diverse, the most women, most women of color. And it does seem to be like we've reached a point where the old conventional thinking that like, yeah, you have to be like a rich, old male lawyer in order to be successful in politics. A lot, you know, a lot of the women who are now serving in the House, now they're running for reelection prove that wrong and i I just wonder if you think or see that sort of trickling down into to local elections
3: Mm, yeah i mean absolutely that's that's part of the work that we do in trying to identify candidates is really like demystifying the idea of like what it means to be electable you can't see but because this is a podcast but i'm wearing a sweatshirt that says electable and buttons (laughs) and buttons but i mean like taking that idea of like what does it look like to be electable? Like, what kind of person do you have to be? Like, we've been told, like, you have to have all these like, respectability policies. You have to look a certain way, to be a certain way. In Philadelphia, we worked on Kendra Brooks' campaign for a city council. She, when she came in to run for office, she thought nobody will want somebody like me because I am a single mother for many years. I have all these, I have, like, she's older, she has kids. She's like, you know, she's not rich, like all of these things. Black, <laughs> number one uh, in like neon light screaming, I'm black. But those are not reasons not to vote for somebody. Those are often reasons to vote for somebody. And so we try and like get people to understand like who you are authentically is a value that other people cannot take from you. And they also can't compete with it. Like nobody else could be you. And therefore, like, you are the one <laughs> that should be doing this. You are the one who lives in this community. You're the one who understands the people here because you've lived here. So, but also, I do think that, like, part of building a bench, part of building power, is recognizing the value in all of these levels of government. So, like, DA is just just as important as mayor is just as important as like state senator, just as important as a person who's a House of Representatives to the president. Like, you can't. There's a lot of like, things that people of color, poor people, working class people, we don't always have access to the same resources that other people have to take these jobs. I was considering running for a state house this year. And when I looked at the job, I also looked at how much it paid because it's a job and it pays money. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be a, in the Georgia state house. Like, What's going to happen? I'm going to have this job and get paid this big money. This job pays $17,000 per year total. And what that tells me is they have designed this role to be taken by somebody who either has family wealth already or someone who is supported by somebody who has family wealth. Basically someone who does not need to work to make money and therefore can take a job that it takes a lot to run for office. You basically have to like pause the rest of your life in order to do the running for office. And then once you're in office, you have a whole job that you have to do. And so you can't have a million other jobs. There's a a person who's running for office here in Georgia who was doing a lot of work around the idea of like having health insurance as a candidate because she had to quit her job in order to run for office and then therefore didn't have health insurance. And I mean, these kinds of things that you don't always think about when you're thinking about running for office, when you're thinking about what is it like to a candidate what it's like to be an elected official they're also real people who also have real bills and they have to, you know, support their families and all those things and if you're not already rich it can be a really daunting idea to like go into this space where you are just like basically pouring money and not getting a lot in return and so i don't know i just we try to equip people with that knowledge and also help people understand like there are ways to do this and we have to like once we're in these offices figure out ways to change this so that we can make it more accessible to people so that everybody doesn't have to jump through a million billion hoops and become like financial magicians just to do a job that should be open and available to everyone.
0: Yeah. I don't know if it's unique to the South. It feels unique to the South where, you know, a fairly large city, like say a city like Jackson, Mississippi, city council members get paid $25,000 a year. Like, and, it's a, and it's supposed to be a full-time job.
3: I mean, that's the scandal of it, truly. I mean, the Secretary of State in Georgia, the Secretary of State gets paid $17,000 a year. That means they don't want me to have that job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess the point we're making is there's so much work to actually like convince people to run for these offices and serve. We've also seen very hardworking local and, and even members of legislatures who were just like, yeah, man, I got, I, I have to make more money. You know, like I cannot support my family on a legislative salary and they have to make the decision not to serve anymore.
3: I know like city council people who drive for Lyft on the side. I know people who have like two or three other jobs that are a little bit more flexible that allow them to also be representatives. People do a lot of work outside of the work that they're doing to represent us in order to like hold space for community in those places because if we don't do that and if we don't support people who are doing that then we're going to end up with representatives who truly don't represent us they are like representing a class of people that are unrecognizable to most working people
0: this is supposed to be an uplifting and empowering
3: show (laughs) i mean it is uplifting the uplifting part is that like we are doing this work we are in conversation and in community with people all the time that like that whatever happens in November at the end of this thing, it's not the end of anything. Like it is in many ways the beginning of something else, and that's how I think of every single election. Like the election day, you get the results, something happens, win or lose. That's the beginning of another process. That's the beginning of other opportunities. Be it like now we have a candidate in office and we organize around what they're doing because they're on our side and we know them and we've talked to them and we've like created a relationship with them or it's the somebody that we didn't want and now we we've like spent this time during the election learning about who they are where their values are what they're interested in and so we have a better sense of like how we need to organize against them (laughs) and either unseat them or work around them or do other things to support communities that we know are going to be hurt by them it's not as devastating a thought to me as I think some people, I feel like it's kind of like a, I don't know, a right-wing talking point to say like, ooh, this thing is going to be chaos. It's going to be terrible because it it inspires people not to be involved, not to vote, not to try, not to even go out. But if you think about it as like, when I'm going to vote, I'm thinking like, I'm trying to create the like landscape within which I can organize. So I'm going to put my cards on the table and like put my little vote in this basket and hope that that's the result that comes out. Cause that's the one that I know is going to help me get to where I want to go, which is complete black liberation and freedom. (laughs) 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 And it doesn't always end up that way. Sometimes I end up with somebody else who might not want that same thing as me, in which case, all right, I know where we stand and now I'm able to do something else with that knowledge.
0: Yeah, it is true that sometimes we end up with candidates who do not want Black liberation and freedom.
3: (laughs) It's a shame, but it is true.
0: Yeah. You talked a little bit about Atlanta. What are the sort of the opportunities or looking ahead to next year? What do you see as, you know, the sort of big opportunities for people to get involved?
3: Honestly, like I have been beating the drum for Georgia for years, but this year and next year are crucial for the country with respect to Georgia. I mean, we have two whole Senate seats that are currently on the line and a seat in the House of Representatives. Now, that might not mean that much to everybody, but people should if you are watching these like Supreme Court nomination hearings and you care about that, you should care about this election because the reality is like we have the chance to have two new senators from Georgia, one of whom could be a black man, And that decision will happen in November, possibly December, if there's a runoff. But that person, whoever those people are who get elected, they will be able to vote on this new Supreme Court justice. Therefore, that could really swing like lots of things for the entire country. That seems like a big deal to me. I hope it seems like a big deal to everyone. I wish more people were paying attention. I mean, this is something that we struggle with in the South all the time. We get a lot of like shade from the rest of the country about like, Voter suppression and like mismanaged elections and being red states and like all these negatives. But the reality is, like, people have and are organizing all over the South to build power in local elections. And you see it all the time with like, you know, cities who elect uh, Democratic mayors who have the best interests of the people at heart. And you can build from there. And so it's like, it's not going to happen overnight. Like, tomorrow isn't going to be like every day everyone in the south is like <laughs> is every state is a blue state like we all just live in this idyllic paradise but we do have an opportunity in local elections in 2021 like i said earlier the entire atlanta city council is up for grabs they're all up for re-election the mayor is up for re-election Secretary of State's up for re-election. We got a governor's race coming up. Like we have a lot of things that are happening and there's a lot of different levels of government that people could like become interested in, invested in. You know, if people are interested in running for office, I encourage them to reach out to me at the Working Families Party. We are always looking for people to run. We are always looking for people to talk to about what's happening in their community. Cause like, that's how, that is how we win. As a political party, as the party of the people, as people who care about people, that's how you win in the long term. And that's what we're about.
1: And that's our show, folks. We've got just one more episode before the 2020 election, so we wanted to take a quick moment to remind you to go vote. In the very first episode of this season, we examined the long, hard fight for the ballot. Don't take it for granted.
0: But don't forget that voting is just one part of the process. If there's one takeaway from this season, we hope it's an understanding of the major movements on the ground in the South, and deeper insight into the major issues still plaguing our region.
1: This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree.
0: And me, R.L. Nave, Abby
1: Gibson at Edit Audio edited the episode. If you like our show, please share your favorite episode with your friends and family. We've worked hard this season to bring you a show that stands out from all the other political podcasts out there. And if you've already subscribed, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And until next
0: time, thanks for reckoning.